the sound of God. I do, in fact, believe God has a sound, and I certainly hear it through the voices of my friends, the Reverend C.C. Jones Davis and Antoinette Jones, who you will hear from this powerful live experience at the Mendenhall Lecture. Welcome back to the Zycast. Because I introduced my friends pretty thoroughly in the live experience that you're about to hear, I won't reintroduce them because I want you to jump right into the thing. I will say this, this idea that you'll hear me talk more about in just a moment of the sound of God. It's been one that's been rattling around for a while. Didn't plan to say anything like this remotely that night. And the way, the weird way that those things happen, um, just sort of tumbled out with sort of a clarity and intensity that I hadn't felt. Like one of those things you almost don't know that you really believe or the extent to which you believe it until you hear yourself say it. But as I said about the first Mendenhall lecture and this whole experience, and there's a reason that I've, find myself stumbling a little bit to you know to talk about it now. It, there was such a holy thing that happened to us. Those of you who are familiar with this podcast, Joel and Tosh Everson need no introduction to you. Joel, Tosh, of course, my dearest friends in the world and um, my initial connection to all things Greencastle. And many of you know they have an amazing uh, bourbon bar here, the whisk. And of course, they're amazing musicians. And did music both nights. So you'll hear at the very end here, Joel and Tosh doing a song from our good friend, Mr. William Matthews, who's also a friend of this podcast. If you're listening, William, we love you called we'll all be free. And the thing that I felt in that room that night, you know, I know there's such a diversity in the belief and practice of people who are in that space there. And the only way I'd not describe what I felt was this sense of, you could just feel it collectively in, in the room. This kind of like, oh yeah, well, if this is worship, then I'm into it. And this sense almost that wherever we come from on any other end of the ideological continuum that worship is what we were caught up in and what we were doing together. Uh, Tosh kept going, Tosh, she kept singing and it was the most non obligatory growing up the Pentecostal church. You know, soundtracks can have a reprise. It was, was non obligatory reprise ever. It was just a, uh, there was something so primal and raw and real happening. You almost couldn't stop singing if you wanted to. And that's largely what the experience felt like, you know, sort of being caught up in a song that started before we got there and will go on long after we're gone. And I hope you feel something of that. I love CC. I love Antoinette, as I say more about here in a few moments. 
But most of all, through this listening experience now, I hope you'll get caught up in the sound. Hope you'll discern the sound of God for yourself. Hope you'll recognize the sound. Hear it. Uh, can I throw this in and be real preachy for a second? Sure, I can. It's my podcast. Um, I hope you'll give yourself permission that when you're not hearing that sound, when it doesn't have that kind of um, resonance with your own soul, when you know you're not hearing the sound, hope you'll give yourself permission to tune it out. Change the station. And only to tune in to the sound that you know is wild and tender and true and real. Enough about that. You need to hear this. Thank you for listening. Thanks for those of you who give on Patreon. If you're not, um, sure would appreciate it because there are going to be new podcasts dropping every day for a long time. I know because I got the content, y'all. And I can't wait for you to hear it and to hear how it speaks to where you are. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for entering into this sound with us. somebody actually, actually it seems, seems the people, people who are, are most rooted in the particularity of the tradition are most equipped to welcome other people into that space where everybody gets to belong and, and so, so i'm, I'm saying, saying on that, that to, to, to kind of say this i'm not I'm trying not to impose this on uh, anybody i'm not the preacher tonight so i'm trying not to get to preaching but for, for me at me, least there is a sound of god and while i have particular theology, particular faith commitments, where I come from, like everybody does, that sound, I must say at this point, runs way deeper than the ideas. Uh, we have a wonderful Iman here, Ahmed Alamin, and I feel like whenever we're together, we're like schoolboys. There's such an energy, like we just, we have these big, wide open conversations, just deeply love each other. And I know whenever I'm around Imam Alameen, that while we don't share the exact same theological convictions, I sure enough recognize the sound. There's a sound that's there that resonates with me, even though we don't come from the same tradition. By the same token, there are a lot of people who might recite the same creed that I do, have the same sacred text that I do, but I don't recognize the sound at all. I don't recognize the sound. And I don't trust anybody where I can't recognize that sound. I don't know exactly what that sound is for you, but for me, I've come this far. If there's a force of love and logic at work in the universe, if there's some kind of deeper mystery, then I'm pretty certain that that sounds like freedom, that, that sounds like liberation, not constriction, not exclusion. I'm pretty sure if something like that exists, if there's a deeper mystery, that it sounds like people being integrated and whole not people wanting to take their own lives because the theology is so toxic that it caused them to be filled with self-hatred. That's a word maybe I am preaching. So in this particular event, these two nights, part of what I love about this is every speaker we have, you hear the sound. We might call that sound different things. 
oh, but you recognize the sound. Your soul knows that sound. <laughs> and tonight I'm especially grateful to welcome two friends who really embody this sound in my life. And yes, I know all these folks. We have a lot of wild stories between us. Shane Claiborne was here last night. We both got kicked off of Liberty University together. Google that sometime. It's a fun story. But Reverend Cece Jones Davis and uh, Antoinette Jones and I, like, we, we've lived a lot of life together. We know each other. Living life in Oklahoma. And so by way of introduction, I want to say about Antoinette first. There are so many reasons that Julius Jones has captured the heart of many of us. Not the least of which that this is a person who, after spending 20 years on Oklahoma's death row for a crime we deeply believe he did not commit, um, never got a legitimate defense. All kinds of aberrations from the very beginning. A juror who used the N-word. Um, none of that was taken seriously. Signed affidavits, five or six of them now, uh, where the person who committed the crime has confessed to other people. None of that taken seriously. And while this is a wonderful story in terms of the movement that's gathered around Julius, there's something also deeply unsettling about the fact that it took over 7 million people to sign a petition, all kinds of voices, to move the needle when it comes to one person, one life. But in the midst of this story, um, it's not just Julius that's captured so many of our hearts. It's the Jones family. And I want to tell you that being able to walk alongside of Antoinette and her precious mom and dad, and you know, Madeline, we just love her so much. I said last night, she's a patron saint for many of us. The grace, the humility, the compassion, the strength, the courage that I have seen in her, the, that we've seen in your family, makes me want to believe. It makes me want to believe in the deeper mysteries and the deeper stuff. It makes me feel like, um, makes me want to keep going and to keep fighting. And I don't know a better thing I could say about a person than that. You made me want to believe and make me want to fight. Believe that they're still good at work in the world. So I can't wait for you to hear from Antoinette in just, in just a few moments. And just before her, Reverend Cece Jones Davis introduced you several times now. I don't want you to get tired of hearing the same stuff. So she has done a lot of remarkable work in her life and her career, served in the Obama administration. Uh, done all kinds of advocacy, a lot around menstrual equity, which I'd love to have you back another time just to talk about that. Uh, so important. But while we were together in Oklahoma and uh, ended up at what grace in all this that we found each other and ended up starting a community together called The Table. And in the earliest days of that, Cece had seen a documentary about Julius on ABC called The Last Defense, and it grabbed a hold of her heart. So while at that point she had no background, no training in terms of um, doing advocacy in the criminal justice system, uh, there was a sense of calling on her. And it seems so appropriate, again, as we keep coming back around to this school of prophets, Dr. King, uh, priest. And I, I don't, if you've known anybody in your life, I, I, I'm not one of those folks. Um, you know that famous quote, uh, pornography, like you know when you see it, <laughs> the judge said one time. I don't. I don't claim to be a prophet, but I know a prophet when I see it. And C.C. Jones Davis, it was like there was a mantle that came on her, a heaviness, the sense of, you know, not like self-aggrandizement, but like there was a thing. And I remember so many times, C.C., when we prayed for you because that you've carried that burden heavy. And it's been, um, it's been a challenging thing. But to see 
the work that she's done, the way she movement to over 7 million people around the world. And I'm sorry, this is, I'm not, I don't want to cut in your time because you, you certainly get to cut loose. But one of the things I love about this, even as we talk about particular theological commitments, uh, Cece has a way of so brilliantly and so humbly framing things. One of the things I love about you, Cece, is this, there's a humility that's accessible to people in a warmth, but also a seriousness too. And so I would recognize in things that Cece would say, this is not just what anybody would say if they're not connected to a particular tradition. I love you standing at the, you know, right outside the governor's door, saying, we don't believe any blood needs to be shed because my theology says Jesus paid it all. Now, that's faith informing, informing a witness. Um, I love, and we, uh, we shared that just within the last few days, um, some of these wonderful remarks. When people were saying, as I feel like always happens, when as a society we do unspeakable things to people, oh, well, maybe they did something first. Were they all that great? But people started saying, well, Julius Jones, you're making him sound like Jesus. And TC had the most brilliant response to that. We haven't turned Julius Jones into Jesus. Y'all turned him into Jesus when you started saying, crucify him, crucify him. Had a powerful theology at work and all of that. So, Stacey, is, uh, you were one of the people in my life who most inspires me, speaks into my life. You're such a dear friend. What a gift to be able to share you here. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. You are a prophet, my friend and my sister. So, we love you so much. Stacey Jones Davis. Thank you. Wow. Well, good evening, everyone. How are you? It's so, so great to be with you tonight for such an illustrious event here at DePaul University. I tell you, I have had the best time ever over the last couple of days. And I want to thank my friend Jonathan Martin for the invitation and just introducing me to this amazing, amazing community. I want to also thank the president. President White, thank you so much. Would you stand up? We want you to know how much we. This lady, this lady is the first woman. She is the first woman of color president of this institution. And that's a really, really big deal. And so we honor that. We honor that. My cousin Deshay and his family drove all the way an hour and 30 minutes from here. Hey, Deshay. Hey, family. So good to see you. And a special shout out to the ladies of Alpha Kappa, Alpha Sorority Incorporated. If you were in the house, <laughs> good to see you tonight. I am here tonight uh, to help us continue a conversation about death and faith in Black history. By sharing with you all some of my personal story and then a little bit um, about the effort to stop an innocent Black man, Julius Jones, from being executed by the state of Oklahoma. For the past several years, I, alongside the Jones family, include, including Antoinette, who you will hear from in just a bit, have led the Justice for Julius campaign. And I'll warn you that there's not enough time tonight. There's not enough time to share all the details of what has happened. There's been so much 
that has happened. But here is the bottom line that I want you to take away if you don't take away anything else. White supremacy wrapped in legal and political power continues to threaten the lives of people of color in this country. I'm going to say that again because it's really true and it's important. We need to take it in. White supremacy that is wrapped in legal and political power continues to threaten the lives of people of color in this country. And this is just one of the many learnings that have been reiterated through the Justice for Julius story. A little bit about my background and how I became an activist. I am from a small town called Halifax County, Virginia. It is on the border of North Carolina. It is the same county that Henrietta Lacks is from. And Halifax is a really, really nice place. It's a nice place to grow up. It's a place where everybody has known everybody forever. It's a place where people speak to each other as we walk by. We honk our horns and wave our hands to our neighbors from the porch. Halifax is a place full of Southern charm and sweet tea and nice people. But underneath the surface, Halifax is also a place that is still very much marred by the history of slavery and racism. You see, Halifax County, with all of its charm and with all of its grace, was once the largest slave-holding county in the state. Only a few hours away from Jamestown, where the first enslaved Africans came in 1619. For hundreds of years, Black people toiled the soil of Halifax, harvesting cotton and tobacco and building the big houses of the plantations. And today I have to say the name of my grandmother, Leola Easley Graves, she was a descendant of those enslaved people. She was a brilliant, brilliant Black woman. She was number three in her high school class, but because she could not afford to go to college, she got married, she had children, and she did what, what many Black women at that time did. She started to work as a domestic in an affluent white home. This home just so happened to be the home that was once the place where our people were enslaved, her great-grandmother. She mopped that floor. She took care of Miss Dolly, who was the matriarch of that white family. She called little white boys, sir. And I went to work with my grandmother and I saw some of these things, but I, I, I don't want you to be deceived about who she was. That's what she did, but that's not who she was. My grandmother was the queen of our village. There would be many days where she would come home from work in her uniform and there would be a family sitting on a porch. And sometimes she knew those people and sometimes she didn't, but she would always welcome them inside. She would grab a notebook and a pen and she would say, tell me, 
Tell me your story. My grandmother, you see, was the scribe of the black community in Halifax County for over 30 years, free of charge. A poor woman would write the obituaries for people who died in my town. She would write down the details of birth and life and death and work for those people, her generation and older who could not read or write. They came to Leola not just because she could write. They came to her because she was brilliant and because she was compassionate and because she was such a poised storyteller. They came to her because she had a special way of communicating the humanity of people who often had no money and often had little reputation and people who were living on the margins. And by the time my grandmother was done writing, kings and queens were born. She knew how to find power and beauty in everybody's story. And she demanded that the world take notice of those lives, even if only by way of the little bitty obituary section in our small town newspaper. She believed that everybody's life mattered. She believed everybody deserved dignity. She believed that it was her moral responsibility since she could write to write for those who could not write for themselves. And from her life, I have learned so, so many powerful lessons that I really do today try to carry with me in my work. I have learned the importance of doing good for other people from the heart with no expectation. I have learned to do right because it is right, not for accolades or acknowledgments. I have learned that every grace and every gift and every blessing that I have is for the upliftment of other people. And I have been so, so fortunate in my life with opportunities that my grandmother did not have. I was blessed to attend Howard University. I was blessed to attend Yale University, much to her delight, but she would sometimes give me a gentle caution. She would say, baby, the more you read, the more you will know. The more you watch, the more you will know. The more places you go, the more you will know. And then you will be responsible for what you know. I came to know the story of Julius Jones in August of 2018 when I stumbled upon the ABC documentary, The Last Defense. I had been living in Oklahoma for a few years with my family at the time. I was a stay-at-home mom of two little kids. And the details around Julius Jones being charged with murder as a 19-year-old, having a poor legal defense, having evidence that was never presented to court, including a confession. And when I saw Julius's story, the words of my grandmother rang in my spirit, you are responsible for what you know. And so the next morning, after watching that documentary, I Googled Julius's attorneys. I found a number and I gave them a call. And a brilliant woman named Amanda Bass, she answered the phone and I told her that I had just seen 
Julius's story the night before and I just couldn't sleep. And that I needed to find a way to help. And Amanda, she probably thought I was a little off. She, she said, you're so sweet. You know, write a, write a letter to the governor, you know, and ask for mercy. And, and, you know, I hung up the phone and I said, all right, now I can write a letter, but a letter's not going to do enough to get a man off death row in Oklahoma. I need to do so much more. So that really did begin for me a years long journey of working with Julius's family and his attorneys as the lead advocate on the ground to fight for justice for Julius. And I have to tell you that the first two years were were so grueling because I wasn't from Oklahoma, so I didn't know many people. But I started to do research and connect with people and map out the major influencers across the state. And I met with so many of them, at least as many of them who would take a meeting with me. And I started the Julius Jones Coalition, which is a group of powerful advocates from all over the country who had seen The Last Defense too. And we all just came together like, what in the world do we do? And we, we stayed together. Tilling the ground of Oklahoma, we've, we organized viewings of The Last Defense so that the wider community could see what we were talking about. We held public meetings about Julius and churches. We started social media pages. Antoinette and I traveled all over to meet with people in power, and, and some people cared, but I have to tell you that not enough, not nearly enough people cared. But we were determined to try, and we were determined to leave absolutely no stone unturned. And it's important for you to know that none of us who cared about Julius knew what we were doing especially me. I did not have a background in criminal justice. I, I, I was not an attorney. I was not a politician. But what I do believe is that we have been led by the Spirit of God day by day, and that because we were persistent, extraordinary things have happened. Just because we have been committed to doing the right thing. And after some time of some really gritty work, particularly after we hosted some private uh, screenings of the movie Just Mercy in 2020, something powerful started to happen. Represent Justice, which is a national uh, nonprofit, heard about our work and decided to take us on as a campaign and they funded us. And that put us in touch with Kim Kardashian and Scott Budnick and Bishop T.D. Jakes and so many other celebrities started to kind of lean into this work. And it wasn't just them. It was mostly not them. People that we would can all consider everyday people, folks without these kinds of platforms and followings. It was, it was them. People from all walks of life, from every religion, every ethnicity, every sexual orientation, political party. We all came together to save the life of one black man in the state of Oklahoma. We came together and I like to say we formed a human chain. We have all seen powerful images of what happens when a person is caught up in a riptide at the beach. Strangers from all over the beach hear that someone is in distress and they come together without hesitation, locking arms, forming a human chain to pull a stranger to safety. And folks, that is exactly what happened here.
The best of humanity came from all over the world. We locked arms with total strangers, virtually and in person, in the midst of a global pandemic to fight for the life and freedom of Julius Jones. And through this work, I have learned some new valuable lessons about the pursuit of justice that I want to highlight here tonight. I have learned the power of persistence. I have learned that there is a difference between peace and quiet. I have learned that community is stronger than systems. The power of persistence. Dr. King once says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? It reminds me of a parable that is found in the book of Luke when Jesus is trying to teach his disciples how to pray. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your persistence, he will surely get, get up and give you as much as you need. I have learned that to do justice, as I define doing justice as just making things right, to make things right, whether we are in Oklahoma or any other place in this world, we must know the power of persistence. We must know the purpose of humble beginnings. It is imperative that we have a strong determination inside of ourselves to keep going. It is important that we have a grit that defies the negative narratives and the many no's that we will get along our way. We must be persistent to advocate for the needs of other human beings, just as this man was in the parable. We must knock on the door at midnight at times of inconvenience. We must knock at the door at midnight and disrupt the comfort of those who have the power and the resources to affect change. Sometimes we will have to knock at the door at midnight to wake people up out of their apathy, to wake people up out of their comfort, to jostle folks out of colorblindness and homophobia and privilege and racism. There is power in persistence when we knock and keep on knocking when we ask and keep on asking when we do not allow setbacks and delays and disappointments to keep us from pursuing Dr. King's dream of equity, justice, and radical love. So many people told me that I was crazy. So many people said that justice for Julius was a lost cause and there was nothing that I could do but there was something on the inside of me. There was something on the inside of us and it was like fire shut up in our bones and we could not let it go. Powerful people turned us away, said it was too late, told us to shut up and go home, but we could not let it go. Powerful people said all kind of bad stuff about us. We had real threats, but we could not let it go. I came 
to depart tonight to encourage you in whatever pursuit of justice you may be in and whatever ways that you are trying to make things right. Do not let it go. Because when we let things go, there are very real consequences. When we let things go, human beings fall through the cracks. When we let things go, innocent people like Julius Jones are executed in states like Oklahoma. And so we cannot afford to let things go. Too much is at stake. And this is not just about them. It's not just about the people that we are trying to help. It's mostly, y'all, about us. Because when we let things go, we open up a door to the moral decay of our own humanity. When we let things go, rot begins seeping into our souls. Through justice for Julius, I've learned the power of persistence. And I have learned that there is a stark difference between peace and quiet. We often use that phrase, I just want peace and quiet. And we treat these words as if they are interchangeable, as if they are constant commonality, but they're not. Peace and quiet are not the same things. Quiet is the lack of noise. Quiet is the lack of words. Quiet is the lack of movement. Quiet reflects an outward experience. It is a social grace that we try to extend in classrooms and on public transportation and in libraries. But the problem with quiet is that it is not a good indicator about how things really are. Rivers are quiet, but they are dangerous. Snakes are quiet, <laughs> but they're deadly. Quiet. It's not a good indicator about how things really are, but peace, peace is a different story. Peace requires a deep work in the innermost places of ourselves and our communities. Peace requires noise. It requires words. It requires movement. Peace requires truth-telling and demands that we strive to make things right, even if we have to strive in the dark and strive over vast terrain. Peace is a messy, complicated, holy work. The Beatitudes don't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. The Beatitudes say, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking requires that we acknowledge harm when harm has been done. Peacemaking requires humble acts that work to repair the harm. In a nutshell, peacemaking requires risk-taking. We have to take the risk of saying the wrong thing sometimes, but it's better than being quiet. We have to take the risk of losing friends and loved ones for standing for what is right, but that is better than being quiet. We have to take the risk of being misunderstood and criticized and judged, but that is better than being quiet. In sleepy towns and states across this country, we are deceiving ourselves into believing that as long as we are quiet, everything is okay. Dr. King said, true peace 
is not merely the absence of conflict. It is the presence of justice. Friends, if we are not working toward justice, we cannot have peace. We might pass by each other on the sidewalk and smile, but that's not peace. We might drive by our neighbors and honk our horns and wave our hands from the porch. That's not peace. We might worship in the same place, in the same church, in the same synagogue, in the same mosque. We might buy coffee for the lady in the car behind us at the drive-thru, and that is so, so nice, but it's not peace. If we go through life just trying to be nice, we will deceive ourselves into believing that we are automatically moral. I would like to be nice, but I would rather be moral. I would like to be nice, but I would rather be good. I'd rather get into the trenches with people who are combating problems. I'd rather commit myself to learning how to be a good friend, a good neighbor to people who are living on the margins. I'd rather make a contribution in the world that moves the ball of humanity forward. I would like to be nice, but I would rather be good. From this experience, I have learned the power of persistence. I've learned the difference between peace and quiet. And I have learned that community is stronger than systems. That when we come together, anything is possible. From September to November 2021, advocates for Julius were in the fight of our lives. The criminal, Oklahoma's criminal legal system was determined to execute this man, despite the fact that the parole board not voted once, but voted twice that his sentence should be commuted from death to life with the possibility of parole because of the evidence that didn't make it to trial. But even with these recommendations from the parole board, this bloodthirsty system would not budge, but do you know what people did? People across Oklahoma, people across this nation, people across this world responded with rallies and marches and prayer vigils and a massive social media effort that reached 37 million people. 6.5 million individuals signed a change.org petition asking the governor for mercy for Julius, Julius Jones, thousands and thousands of people sent letters and made phone calls to the governor's office. Hundreds of people participated in a three-day sit-in in the Oklahoma State Capitol building. Children walked out of their schools in protest, didn't ask their mamas, didn't ask their daddies. They just organized themselves and walked out Governments from around the world sent letters to the governor demanding that the execution be stopped. Companies across the country vowed to stop doing business with Oklahoma if Julius Jones was executed. People organized and came together in the most extraordinary and powerful ways. Oklahomans, celebrities, people of faith, people of no faith at all, black folks, white folks, native folks, 
everybody, Republicans, Democrats, they came together and we formed a human chain. And that chain is the reason why Julius Jones is alive today. It is because the community is stronger than systems. Now, I really want to be clear that Julius Jones did not get the justice that he deserves and his family has not gotten the justice they deserve because the governor waited until four hours before the scheduled execution to stop it. He allowed Julius Jones to have a last meal. He allowed Mama Jones and this family to have a last visit. It was a cruel, cruel display of power and racism. The governor ended up commuting Julius's sentence to life without the possibility of parole. And today we continue the fight to bring him home to his family. But I am so grateful that we do have a chance to continue the fight. I'm so grateful for the lessons that we have learned, the power of persistence, difference between peace and quiet, and community as stronger than systems. And I just want to say tonight that across this country, not just in Oklahoma, there is so much work to do. Institutional racism plagues the criminal legal system. But not just that, health care and education and housing and on and on and on. And it's not enough for us to be nice people. We must continue to strive to be moral people, to be good people by confronting the issues that keep black, brown, poor, and LGBTQIA folks on the margins. Y'all, we have still a race problem in this country. Over the past several years, I can't even count for you how many hateful emails and other aggressions I've received. Before leading this campaign, I have never been called a nigger to my face. I can't tell you how many times that Julius Jones has been condemned to nigger hell. Nor can I tell you how many threats and break-ins and vandalisms the Jones family have experienced. We have a race problem in this country. And we cannot continue a culture of quiet because underneath the surface of that culture are dangerous, dangerous sentiments that can be deadly to vulnerable people. But there, I think there is some good news. I think the good news is that we do have some time to work. The good news is that we have an opportunity to commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to peacemaking in a fresh way. That we can persist in advocating for the lives and dignity of all human beings, especially by working to abolish the death penalty and ending mass incarceration. In just a few moments, you will hear from the heart of this campaign, Antoinette Jones, Julius's extraordinary sister. But first, I would like for you to hear from Julius himself. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. CC, we want to invite Antoinette to uh, join you. Is that, would you please welcome Antoinette as she comes? We're so honored to have you, my friend. And in, um, in just a few minutes, I want to uh, give folks a chance to ask both of you some questions. But I love how much y'all have been able to have conversations like this together, being able to be in the room sometimes and eavesdrop on some of these conversations have been, um, has been, has shaped me so much. So I would love it for y'all to just chat a little bit and then I'll jump in to facilitate everybody else, but just want to keep the focus on. Yes, please. So like, I obviously know all of these things I'm about to ask Antoinette. So it's totally for you all's benefit. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that she's able uh, to be, um, here tonight, she is one of the most extraordinary human beings I have ever met. So, Antoinette, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself? We'll get into your brother in a minute, but um, tell the people who who Antoinette is. I don't know if I can with that sermon. <laughs> um, I am. Where do I start? For me. At the age of 37 now, when people ask, you know, who I am, I can't help but give all praise to God. Um, and that's just where I am in my life. Um, starts with prayer for me. Um, I love mentoring kids. Um, I love basketball, softball. Um, I love training basketball and in softball. And every time I talk about this, I get people in my inbox. <laughs> but um, I love going to church. I love praising God. I love thinking I can sing, you know. <laughs> um, I just, I love being around people that love God. I love, I really love helping people just, you know, find an easier way to do things. Um, 
I didn't think I would like coaching because I'm not going to lie to you. I don't like kids like that. I can't even say that anymore, but <laughs> I love kids. But um, I, I, God has really been working with my heart to just kind of figure out what I like doing because she asked me, what do I like doing? And I had the hardest time, like, what was it, four years ago? She asked me, what do I like doing? And I said, as long as I can put a smile on my on my family and friends' face, or as long as they're good, I'm good. And I realized me, that wasn't good enough. Which, yep, exactly right. Because what I quickly realized about you was that since you were 13 years old, this happened to Julius when he was 19. You were 13. Your, I immediately what I what I learned about you is how you have been the backbone really kind of holding him together, connecting him, making sure that he is still connected to family, that he has someone to talk to. And I've seen you sacrifice so much. Could you tell folks a little bit about how at 13, um, having, having your brother arrested and ultimately convicted of this and put on death row, what was that like? And what has that been like for your family? It always starts with a gun from the police officers. It always starts with when I when I have to go back that far, I think about for the first time in my life having a gun pulled on me. Not just one, but several. Um That day changed my perspective of the police for a long time. That day changed um, that was when I really started learning about the Constitution and the amendments and learning about laws. <clears throat> They're two of the most strongest people that I know on this earth, even now. Um, and there were a lot of stereotypes, you know, where saying, well, this happened because Julius was um, in a single parent home. Um, both of my parents have college degrees. Now, my mother, she does have a master's. But um, both of my parents are educated. The stereotype is that black children don't have two parents in the home. They don't stay in the house. I was blessed and privileged. And I'm a, I know people don't like saying privileged. But at the end of the day, I was blessed with the resources I was blessed to have two parents and I still have two parents in the same household since I was six that we've stayed in the house. Um, even staying in the, in the neighborhood that we stayed in, that wasn't heard of, of a black family staying in a two story house. So we've had all kind of hate when I was growing up. I didn't understand it as hate, but 
my father would get up every morning to go to work. He was a construction worker. He used to say a cement mason. I didn't know what that was. I was like, he does construction. So, <laughs> but he would get up every morning at like 345, 4 o'clock, be on the road. And he would come home and fix dinner. If my mom wasn't home, he would fix dinner. Morning to go teach children. And she is still to this day teaching children. She's a she's been teaching for almost 50 years. Um my oldest brother, Antonio, hard worker. Very silent. We call him Quiet Storm. Well, excuse me. I call him Quiet Storm. Um, but also I also playfully tell him that he's my uh he's my second favorite bodyguard growing up. Um smart. Like everybody in my family is smart in math except for me. I don't know what happened. But um both of my parents are really, really good at math. Um, Julius is exceptional at math as well, but he couldn't help me with calculus last, the, the last year I went, but, um, my oldest brother, Antonio is Julius, was Julius's like other half. So it's really, it's really been hard to to watch like the separation and them needing each other. Like they, you can see that they still need each other. Um, Julius is the charismatic. He's the, the, he's the one that's the peacemaker. I'm not the peacemaker. I'm sassy. I'm, I'm the baby. So, you know, I'm spoiled. Um, but both of my parents instilled at us in an early age to be independent also to always think about serving in the community. They have always provided a way for us to go to camps, you know, just because we stay in the two-story house don't mean we had a lot of money, but they always provided a way for us to get to go to camps and different, different classes to better ourselves. We, Education was serious growing up. It was it was enforced, but you know we didn't it, we didn't have to be told twice that we needed to do homework. I learned at an early age from my brothers never to tell my parents that I don't have homework. I I have homework. In fact, I have notes, even if we didn't do nothing in class. I want to ask you this other question. Um, as you were talking, one of one of the most powerful things that, that I want to make sure you all know about Antoinette. Um, the the day that the, the execution was scheduled on for uh, November the 18th, 2021, and we had the campaign had gotten word that the governor wasn't going to change his mind, wasn't going to do anything. And so um, me and Antoinette had been cordially invited by the state of Oklahoma to his execution. Um, and so we got up early uh, the morning of the 18th and was driving down to McAllister. Um, and Antoinette was sitting in the front uh, of our friend. Quita was driving. I was in the back and 
you know, I will be really honest with you. I, I didn't have any more faith. I was just trying to um, prepare myself for what I was going to see. And um, I was a wreck. I was trying to be as strong as I could in the backseat, but I was I was a wreck. But this woman here did not flinch. Here's what you need to know. The 18th was a Thursday, right? I think the 18th was a, was a Thursday. Antoinette called the prison the Monday before and said, hi, I need to, I want to schedule a visit with my brother Julius Jones for next Sunday. They, and they were confused. They were like, ma'am, Julius is, I'm sorry to tell you, Julius is said to be executed on Thursday. She said, I heard what you said, but I want to schedule a, a, a meeting, a visit with him for Sunday. They put her name down just to pacify her. I want you to know this woman was sitting down there that Sunday visiting her brother. It's important to, to, to say that because, you know, some people got faith, but some folks got extraordinary faith. And to me, that was extraordinary. Can you tell folks just a little bit about that? Like, what was your mindset? Just, we were sitting in the car and God was like, schedule a visit. Just like that. God was like, schedule a visit. Just like God told me, you know, he shall live and not die. He's going to live to sing my praises and talk about all that he has done for him. I will say it is important, even when you're not going through hard times, it is important, period, to be around. It is important to be around people such as Jonathan people such as Cece, people such as Nicole. It's important to be around people that care about you and love you. It is important to know people by the fruit that they bear. Know one spirit from another. You know, I, I used to, when I was little, I used to, you know, say some of these scriptures and I'm like, that don't even make sense. No one's, <laughs> no one spirit from another. I thought we all just had a spirit, you know, but when you get older, it starts clicking, you know. Um, but just to go back to the question that you asked, um, my brother Julius's birthday was July the 25th. We were celebrating his birthday in the, in the summer of 1999, which is, which was, it was a record of, it was one of the hottest summers ever. And so his birthday was the 25th of July. The police came to our house, what, five days, four days, four days later on the 29th, I believe. And my parents were getting ready to go to a class reunion never seen him so happy and a little bit before the police came the police had called on the phone 
And they were like, uh, is Julius Jones there? And I was like, no, he's not. And the, the, the police officer was like, you're lying because I just talked to him. I was like, well, I'm telling you, he's no longer in the house. He's gone. And so he's like, stop lying. He was like, matter of fact, did, who who else is there that I can talk to? I was like, well, my parents are upstairs. And so I knocked on the door and I opened the door and I seen how happy my parents were. And I had to tell them that some man is saying that Julius has, has killed somebody. And I was like, that's, that's not even accurate. He's been with us all week, you know, celebrating his birthday. Um, so I had to give the phone to my dad. So my dad is a, a veteran. He served in Vietnam. When I tell you this man, like you, sometimes you wouldn't even know what he's going through. He's just matter of fact. And he got up, talked on the phone. He said, sir, you can come into the house with me and you can look around but my son is not here. And so fast forward, the police come to the door. And I guess um, from my understanding, the police were supposed to come into the house. They weren't supposed to pull guns on us and things like that. I also had a little cousin with me, um, was scared, was scared. And I know I was, I was so scared. I couldn't freak out or nothing. All I could hear was my dad's voice. And my dad said, don't run, don't move. Keep your, keep your hands up, listen to my voice. And so we did just that. And they pulled us outside and took us across the street. And my dad was, uh, excuse me, we wasn't, we wasn't across the street. We were in the middle of the street. That's what it was. And so my dad was like, I can go in the house with you as we, as we discussed on the phone. And I'll never forget um, this police officer was spitting on my dad as he was talking to him. And he was calling him all kind of names. And my dad was like, just calm down. He was like, you can, you can go in the house with me. Like we discussed on the phone. And I have no idea how my mom did not get shot she walks back into the house. My mom said, I think I ran. I was like, no, you walked back and she had curlers on her head. And, you know, she, uh, she walks back into the house to go get her oldest son and wake him up. Cause he was sleep on the couch. And, um, that's my mom right now, Colin. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> she, uh, she woke my oldest son up. I mean, excuse my oldest brother. She woke my oldest brother, Antonio, up. And she said she was talking to him and telling him to calm down. He's really cranky when he gets up. So they, she was like, no, they got police officers outside. And I remember her telling this story. And all I know is they walk outside and they have their hands up, right? And... The police officers come out the bush. I don't know why they kept going into the bushes because it, it was like some stickers in the, I have no idea. But um, they came out and they were like, get your hands up. And I was like, well, his hands is already up. 
So they walk outside and they was like, are you Julius Jones? And my brother starts laughing. And he says, you don't even know what Julius Jones looks like. And like that day, I was just like, this is a big mistake. It's a big mistake. My brother's been at home, you know. And so I'm I'm thinking they're going to fix this. Once my parents get to talk to the police, they're going to fix this. So we eventually get pushed all the way back in the back of the neighborhood. And they're having people come out their house. Long story short, they said that my brother tight roped on the fence in some flip-flops to get away from them. This is what was documented in the newspaper. Thank you so much um, for just the sacred gift of your story, Antoinette. It's so um, I tell you what, I almost told you, because you know how much I love your mama, how much we love Melanie. Answer the phone. Like, I want to I want to say hi to her right now. I love that not only you sharing your story, but so much of their story. Um, when I said last night and um, again tonight how your mom has been such a patron saint for all of us, her tenacity and fierceness and sweetness. I hope there's, there's no impropriety here in saying this with the thing we did in Oklahoma called the table, uh, small community. I mean, we started a few years ago, all this is concurrent, really same season all within the last four years. I'm the kind of person in terms of anything, in terms of pastoral leadership or whatever, I don't want to know who gives any, there's not things I want to know about, but I do know this. I do know this fact and I can't, I can't think about it without crying. Um, your mom has been the most consistent giver in our church. Like that sends a check like every two weeks and all the things that your family has weathered together and still are. I mean, just the, the generosity of spirit and, um, courage is just, just unbelievable. Um, just amazing people. Um, I do want to take a few moments now to open it up for anybody who would have questions for either CC or Antoinette. Any, um, anybody have questions? Yes. Oh, yes, please. Imani. Okay. Uh, this is a question for both of you. Um, so when like in the fight for justice, where do you find encouragement when you're constantly getting no's? It's hmm. a great question. So it, the encouragement comes from my parents. Um, just because you're told no the first time or the first, first 15 times doesn't mean that people won't change their mind or somebody else won't, won't answer the door. Um, it just means that for that season, that person is not available to help. And this is my mind again. I'm optimistic, but, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, long story short, um, when Cece came and she was talking to all these, some of these people that I had talked to when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 21, for example, just because they said no back then, you know, God showed me that they can still say yes now. And they did. 
in no way am I saying that you have to be saved to hear from God and and for God to use you. But for me, it has made my life better. It has made my strength better. It has made me um, be able to empathize with people that have that have literally spit in my face or stepped on my shoes or pushed me down. Um, but for me, it was when I gave my life to God. And I was intentional about it as I got a little older. I would just quickly say that um, we keep our circle small um, so that we are controlling um, what's going in and out of our ears. Um, We pray a lot. Um, We pray several times a week together and we keep our circle very, very small to just um, keep ourselves focused uh, and encouraged. Thank you so much for that. What a great question, Imani. One of our chapel interns here, please. Yes. Um, hi, my name is, people call me CC too, but my name is Sadiqa. Um, I'm an older sister to three little black boys. Obviously I'm black and, <laughs> um, we're from the inner city. So we're from Brooklyn and I don't know. I feel like I, we don't, we, we grew up without a dad. So I feel like I take on such the role of explaining to them, you know, police brutality and if police just shut up, don't say nothing, don't move, don't blink, just put your hands up. And, you know, I feel like it gets really discouraging. How do you, where do you find the courage to explain to, you know, little boys? I'm sure you guys do a lot of activism work within the communities. Where do you get the courage? How do you explain to little kids that, you know, the people that are supposed to protect you want to shoot you if you blink too hard? Why you how you pass me the mic, sister? Um, man, I could I could tell you several different ways, but um, it first starts with me listening. When I worked at a recreational center, it started with me listening to the kids. Um, but growing up, I was stopped when I was twelve. I was with a group of of boys. We were getting ready to go play basketball after school. And the cop was rolling down the street. They were rolling down the street. And they got out of the car. And they were like, get your hands up. Get your hands up. Get on the ground. And they were like, get on the fence. And we didn't know what to do. So all I could say was, get on the fence. So sometimes until you've been in that situation, you don't really know how to explain to certain kids, but I will never forget. They, they didn't even search me. They just told me to stay on the fence. They made the boys get on the ground with their backpacks. They oversearched them. They were being very aggressive with their language. And you know the crazy part? After they left and we and we all they all got up and we walked home, it was like it was the most natural thing for us to continue to go play basketball. Like nothing happened. So for me, it's to inform them 
that no matter what happens, you do not run, you do not talk back. But what you do do is you go tell your parent and your guardian. When you have calmed down, you go tell them exactly what happened. Pay attention to the badge number and the name. Pay attention to the cop number. I know everything happens real quick and, and you don't know. <sighs> I can't breathe because that's what that's how it is. I mean, I don't know how it, how it is for anybody else, but. When when it's happening to you and you're young, you don't think about little details and stuff like that. But talking to the kids at the recreational center, when I started telling them things like this, then they started saying, well, why do the cops do this? I say, not all cops are bad. Let me first say that because that is the truth. Not all. I have family members that are cops. But. It's the most important thing for parents and guardians to talk to their kids about interacting with the police. It's also important uh, to have police officers come into different recreational centers, which is what I did. It was very hard for teenagers to accept the fact that police officers were just coming to talk to them. So all of the older kids that were uh, 12 and up, they said that when the cops are gone, then we'll we'll come back into, into the center, Miss Nett. But the younger kids, they asked some of the most, some of the most important questions. Why, when you interact with us, do you have your hand on your gun? Like, are we a threat to you right now? And it gave, it gave the young officer pause. And he said, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm doing it right now. And like when they started talking to the kids and I'm glad they were, they were uh, police officers that were not of the same race for that specific reason. Like, even though they do sometimes, I'm not saying all cops do that, but sometimes the interacting actions and the behaviors, if, if you're talking about them in a, in a, in a, a a neutral ground, when it gets talked about, they make changes, and so it was important for me to have a have a relationship with bringing the police into the recreational center, and then it was important for me to talk to the police officers and say, "Hey, we have some other police officers named this and this and this," because the older kids will tell me they'll be like, "It was this cop; he always riding around after school," and so. It, it basically talk to your kid, talk to your, talk to your children, and then also leave a open, you know, leave a door open for them to be able to talk. They have to, they need to talk about what's going on. Oh, I don't, I don't have anything to add. That's yeah. She said that's the, that's the best that we can do. Like what she said is the best that we can do is to educate our kids and to hope for the best. Um, but we have to change police culture like that. That's police culture has to change in this country. And that's all I'll say about that. Thank you, Cece. Got time for maybe one more question to the back. I can make it to you. Just so thankful for the amazing speakers tonight and last night. If you guys missed um, Reverend Moss last night, look it up. It was 
probably the best speech I've ever heard in my life. Um, Reverend Jones Davis, tonight you mentioned something about uh, Virginia and growing up and everybody being so nice. You just nailed Indiana because everybody's nice in Indiana, right? You make a wrong phone call and you talk to somebody for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, but then you mentioned something about not being nice, but being moral and good instead. And um, Reverend Moss last night mentioned speaking truth, and that just resonated with me so much. So my, my question is, how do you, in your worldview, both of you, in your worldviews, objectively determine what is moral and what is good and what is true compared to what is immoral, what is not good, and what is untrue? Um, that's good. That's an awesome question. For me, um, I'll say first that I have a sacred text to refer to that um, that has been always a very helpful guide for me in determining how I um, define morality and what is good and what is virtuous. And so, you know, I'm not just kind of pulling things out of the air like I'm looking at something towards some ancient text that really inspires me and informs me on a regular basis. Um, and then I look around to uh, what is what is work. I look around the history, what has worked and what has not worked. Um, when were the times when we didn't tell the truth and what were the consequences? History really does inform me as to um, how I kind of think about moving things forward. We've done things a certain way. Okay, that wasn't so great. We've learned some things. Now, how do we do things differently? And so for me, I would say um, sacred text is very, very important in grounding me um, in terms of moral compass. And history is very, very important to me in terms of grounding me in, in what's right and what's wrong. Why would I want to go after you? Oh, I'm, I, I'm, look, she write about the scripture, but, um, uh, for me, it is, it's all, it goes back to the old school song. I'm going to treat everybody right. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I want to be treated right. I want to be treated with love, kindness. So in order for me to want that, I must be given that. I must be the change that I seek to see in everybody else. Brilliant. Thank you so much, my friends. One more time, would you show your appreciation for Reverend Cece Jones-Davis and Edna Jones? And tell you what, feel free to go ahead and stand up. Just keep them standing up good. So here's the thing. We're going to, um, as we close, we're going to sing one more time. One of the things that Cece talks about beautifully, but also embodies better than anybody I know, is that this kind of work of resistance in the world um, requires you to nourish your soul. And that's why I love us being able to conclude in song tonight um, so that we take these things that we're sitting with and there's room not only to talk about trauma and 
sorrow and hard things in a really honest way, but also space for space for joy. Uh, just before we do that, and as soon as they're done, uh, we will call it a night. I do want to make a quick announcement. Uh, so at the Center for Spiritual Life, um, so many wonderful things happen every month. Uh, Rabbi Pfeffer, who we love, leads um, our Shabbat service and dinner. We have Juma prayer on Fridays that Imam Almin leads. And one of the things we've been talking about for a while is uh, what it would look like to have a Christian chapel of some sort. So starting not this week, but next week on Wednesdays in the UB living room, we're going to be doing chapel. I'm going to be leading, uh, non-mandatory, obviously, uh, Wednesdays at noon for 30 minutes for anybody who wants to join it. And I would just uh, summarize what we're attempting to do this way, at least this is the idea, is to pursue spirituality that looks like this. It's what we care about. And uh, we're looking for the sound. The sound that we've heard tonight, the sound that we've heard the last couple of nights, mm-hmm. um, that's what that experience is about. So Weekly Christian Chapel, who anybody, for anybody who wants to participate in that, think it's going to be um, a really sweet journey. I want to say thanks one more time for being here. And once again, can Cece, Antoinette, thank you so much. Love you both. Incredible to have you here. Tosh, Joel, take us off.
The cry of the earth.